Wall Street, unfortunately, has totally misled the public into thinking that indexing or passive investing in a broader sense is going to get you average returns. That's a complete lie that Wall Street needs you to believe. That's Larry Swedrow, author of Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett and 14 other books on investing. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Larry tells Joe and Big Al what kind of returns you can expect with passive investing and how he relates investing performance to Babe Ruth and Roger Federer. We'll also learn five things parents need to teach their kids about money from Jack Kozakowski, president and CEO of Junior Achievement, 10 retirement planning moves to make in your 20s, and we'll take a closer look at Donald Trump's tax outline. Now get ready for the sports analogies. Here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Hey, you've heard of Michael Lewis, haven't you? Michael Lewis, yeah, but I, yes, who he is, I couldn't tell you. Have you heard of Moneyball? Yes. Big Short? Yes. Flash Boys? Mm, yes, I've heard it. I've seen the first two. I didn't see the last one. Liar's Poker? Mm, didn't see that one. It's, well, they're books. He's an author. Oh. oh. <laughs> Well, Moneyball's a movie, too. Yeah, so they made it into a movie. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I thought you were talking about, was movies. <laughs> so, Big Al, you've been reading a lot, huh? Yeah, I, I read through the theater. <laughs> Close captions. Well, I, I actually do read a lot, but it's uh, books on audio. I actually don't really enjoy reading a book. I, I, I know that's sacrilegious for a baby boomer, but I enjoy listening to books on tape is what I enjoy. So that's not reading, that's listening. I know, but it's still getting through the material. <laughs> Got it. Um, so he spoke at a conference, Morningstar Chicago. Yeah. And there was a bunch of financial people there, and he was talking about uh, the industry itself. And so when he was researching Moneyball, he was in the locker room of the athletics, Oakland Athletics. Yes. And uh, Billy Bean. Yes. Right. right. He was the coach. And so he had an unorthodox way of recruiting. Um, when he met, um, who, who's that chubby guy? Uh, Jonas Hill. <laughs> yeah, Jonas yeah. Hill. I can tell you who the actors yeah, are. We know the I, actors. I don't know about the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he runs into Jonas Hill slash whatever his name is. Yeah, the real guy. Right, and so he's using computer algorithms to say, all right, well, here, this is the people. that." And then the, the guy goes, well, no, he's a schlup, right? What are you talking about? Well, no, let's just kind of take a look. And you look at these algorithms of all these different people. And, right. right. Instead of going off of gut, let's just have a little, little bit more scientific sure. approach on how we're recruiting our players, and then the scouts yeah. got all upset and things like that. Right. And Michael Lewis was saying that he was in the locker room, in the A's locker room, and he's looking around. Everyone's you know getting out of the shower. I'm not sure what, but he was like, "Man, these guys don't look like professional athletes." Right? You know, they're not in shape. Got it. And they were like, "Yeah, that's the point." Right. right. The, you know, the big ripped um, muscle guy. Right. They're, they're they're a high commodity. Right. We could get these guys on the cheap. But if you play these people together... They'll be just as good as the athletes. I guess, and it worked. Yeah, it right? did work, didn't it? <laughs> and, yeah, so if you have ever seen the movie or read the book, Moneyball, Michael Lewis. And so he referred back, and he was correlating this to the financial services industry because he used to be a bond trader. He wrote the big short and so on. Right. And then so now with this rave of index funds, exchange-traded funds, where there's really no analytics behind it, an index fund or an exchange traded fund for the most part it's you're taking a collective group of assets or stocks in a specific asset class and then they market cap weight those and mm-hmm. then that is the index fund right so if i want a large company growth index fund all right well you could buy the s&p 500 
right? And so it's the top 500 growth companies, basically, right, here in the U.S. Yeah, it is what it is. It is what it is, right? It's not complicated. (laughs) Yeah, it's not complicated. You kind of take a look at book-to-market ratios or price-to-earnings, price-to-cash flow, depending on what analytics that you want to use. And then, all right, well, if it's a growth company, we just put them in this basket and call it good. We charge you 20 uh, basis points, and Mm -hmm. uh, there's your investment. And so he's saying that there's so much money now going into exchange-traded funds and index funds, he's thinking that the pendulum might be switching the other way. Oh, really? Where there's no thought or process in your overall strategy uh, that you're just buying an index, or you hear that, hey, th- you know, this, this I, I, I want to buy an index fund right. versus having a, a complete strategy sure. around it uh, could disrupt the industry a uh, little bit. Okay. So, um, interesting. And I agree with that to some degree, because you and I have argued in the past of saying, hey, well, you know, Alan has his S&P 500 and Barclays, you know, bond portfolio. And yes, you have very low cost. And I might use more expensive type funds. Right. But it's nothing. You have to take a look at the allocation and how you're constructing the overall portfolio. Yeah. And I think that's the message that gets lost. It's the it's the allocation first. Then when you figure the allocation is how do you fill those pieces of the pie? So what I say, and I think you would agree with me, is you fill the pieces of the pie with lower cost funds. But the the lower cost funds are not going to save a poor allocation. Right. It never it will. It doesn't matter if you have the most expensive or the, the cheapest. It's what you're investing in. Right. And then how is your how's your behavior going to react? Yeah, will you stay in when you should? Right. right. Or you know, are you going to, you know, hedge thinking that a certain area of the market is going to do better than others, so you're going to maybe have more money into that? like recency biased. Well, this area of the market has not performed, so I don't want to buy any of that. I want to buy these assets that have performed. So it's the allocation. 96% of the variability of your overall expected return is based on the asset allocation, right? Not necessarily, hey, if you have an S&P 500 index fund, by all means. And the construction of those funds is huge too, because if I'm in a market-weighted capped index fund, Versus having something that is getting me a little bit more equal exposure across the overall markets, right? such as maybe because if I have a large cap index fund, the major component of that expected rate of return are going to be just probably the top 25 holdings of 500 companies. Well, is that really diversification? Is that really what you want to do? Right. So then if I can get more diversification and equal weighted across different asset classes, I think you can start constructing a better portfolio. And then when it comes to rebalancing and tax managing those overall accounts is key. So it's just not always price. It's not always let's buy an index fund, which Al and I were big fans of index funds and exchange traded funds, but it's not the end all be all. And I think people are getting lost in the shuffle and they're only hearing half the message and they're probably making making investment decisions based on half-truths or half-messages. I think that's right, Joe, because I think what people are assuming they're going to get the same rate of return regardless of what investments they pick. And so now they're looking at costs because there's been such a movement on reducing costs over the last couple of years, which, which, by the way, I think is fine. I have no problem with that movement. But the bigger issue is to make sure you got the right investments and the right allocations first, and then make sure they're lower cost. And it's not the other way around. And I think that's what people are doing right now. Well, I think most people, too, back into their overall financial plan 
is that, hey, well, I want to buy this particular fund or this particular stock, and then they back it in into their overall cash flow tax strategy, which is the opposite of what you really want to do. It's looking at, all right, well, how do you construct the portfolio to begin with? It's going to be the demand on the portfolio to create the cash flow that you need long term. And so that's the starting point. Then you have to take a look at the taxation of the income and depending on where your assets are held and how those are going to be taxed and then tax manage that. And then you look at the overall allocation and make sure the allocation is appropriate for what your cash flow and tax implications are. So it's not, let's just buy Apple stock and ride that thing out because I love Apple and everything I use is Apple and blah, 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 blah. So anyway, I thought that article was somewhat... Interesting, I guess. We'll let our listeners, uh, you can email us if you thought that was interesting or not. Please don't. Please don't. (laughs) Nobody knows what's ahead for investors, but Larry Swedro's book, Playing the Winner's Game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, offers bedrock investing principles that can help you profit in today's shaky markets. Right now, it's available for free to Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Just click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get yours. Learn how to think like Warren Buffett and build a well-designed portfolio based on solid evidence and your highest interests. Playing the winner's game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett by Larry Swedrow with a foreword by Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get your free copy. Uh, It's been a while... Alan, that we have our good friend Larry Swedrow on. It's sure, I can hardly remember when we had him last. It has been a while. Well, you're getting older. It wasn't that long. It, <laughs> you're it, right it about might that. Might have been like a couple of months. As you just mentioned on our TV show, I'm I'm, I'm coming up to a big birthday. So let's welcome Larry to the program so we can um, make fun of Al some more about his 60th birthday coming up. <laughs> Larry, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. You make fun of him. I just had my 65th. Imagine how that made me feel. <laughs> so I'm not the oldest guy in the room. Uh, I guess not. Well, you're in the oldest guy in the room, but you're not the oldest guy on this phone call. Okay. Yes. All right. Perfect. Uh, well, Larry has written, what, 14? Um, 15, to be exact, what? but you're close. Yeah, 15. <laughs> Some of the best personal finance books, and I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, Larry. This is probably asking, you know, what is your favorite child? But if you look <laughs> back, what what would you say is your favorite book that you've written in your well, luxury career? I'll answer it in two ways. The one I'm most proud of is the most recent one uh, called Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, co-authored with a good friend now, Andy Birkin, uh, who's the director of research uh, at Bridgeway. And I'm most proud of that because uh, of the great work we put in to document all of the academic research on factors. We cited 106 papers, uh, and it's the first book of its kind examining this world of factor-based investing. Uh, But the book I think... uh, that uh, I'm equally proud of in a different way was a little book called Wise Investing Made Simple in which I used 27 of my favorite stories to help investors uh, who aren't technically oriented and certainly wouldn't read a book like Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, but to help them understand how markets really work and how simple investing really can be if you understand uh, how the markets really work and not how most people and Wall Street wants you to think it works. You know, when you think of investing, you use some of the best analogies. And I was talking to Larry before we got on. It was like, I, I, I butchered the heck out of him. <laughs> uh, 
So I, I, I want to ask Larry for our audience just to kind of let's go back a little bit and, and, and share with our audience, um, you know, some of your favorite analogies that you use to help investors really understand basically how markets work by using, you know, different types of analogies. Uh, sure. I, I think uh, what I learned uh, is long ago, somebody once told me that if you tell somebody a fact, they'll learn. If you tell them a truth, they'll believe. But if you tell them a story, it will live in your heart forever. So what I learned to do is tell stories. And the best stories are ones that maybe have a difficult concept that you're trying to teach. Uh, so if you can create an analogy uh, to that difficult concept in a world where everyone can understand it, then you can translate that knowledge and understanding into the more difficult uh, realm. And one of my favorites is uh, this question about persistence of performance. Uh, now, everybody's familiar with uh, the SEC warning that says past performance isn't guaranteed. And those of us who are aware of the academic literature know the SEC requires that because there's literally no evidence of uh, active managers outperforming beyond the randomly expected. Uh, and yet, this, the hard thing for people to understand uh, is why is that true? Uh, when in every other endeavor that we engage in, active management or the best people uh, outperform. Uh, that's true of managers. When we hire for companies, you look for a manager who's had a successful track record in their prior jobs. When you look to bring up players to your major league team, you look at people who have been successful in the minors. When you draft somebody for your NBA or NFL fantasy team or whatever, you're looking at their past performance because we know it's predictive. Uh, so I had to come up with a way to help people understand why that isn't true. So here's the analogy uh, that I came up with. Imagine you're, you're Babe Ruth and you're the best hitter in the history of baseball, everyone would agree. Uh, and you had a fantastic career. You batted, career average, I think, was 349. You hit over 700 homers, greatest slugging percentage of all time. Now imagine, instead of facing not only great pitchers like Walter Johnson and others of that era, uh, you actually, and then of course you also face some very poor pitchers. But imagine instead of that, you were facing somebody who had Walter Johnson's fastball, Sandy Koufax's curveball, Hoyt Wilhelm's knuckleball, and on and on and on. Uh, each pitcher, a great pitcher who had one great pitch, Carl Hubble's screwball, uh, etc. And every pitcher you faced had all of those skill sets and could throw pitches just like that. Uh, if that, if you did that, Babe Ruth certainly wouldn't have hit 350 or 700 home runs. Who knows what he would have hit, but it certainly wouldn't have come close to that. And the, that, this is the problem that people have. They think of investing in the same way that Babe Ruth is competing one-on-one -on -one against the average person, number one, and some good, some bad. 
Uh, and number two, uh, the problem is that in those kinds of situations, small differences in skill sets can lead to very large differences in outcomes. So let me give you a good example there. So I'm a pretty good tennis player. I'm a weekend player. I don't play all that often, but I would consider myself from a ranking a 3-5 tennis player at a high level. Now, I can play people most of the time who are only slightly better than me. They're 4-0 solid players. If I play them, they'll win 9 out of 10 times, even though there's only a small difference in our skill set. If the, you, you see that in the tennis players, when you get to the tennis tournaments, Roger Federer, best player in the world, he almost never has lost. I don't think he actually has ever lost a match in the first round of a Grand Slam tournament. And he wins every one. By the time he's getting to the last round, and he's now facing the best players in the world, uh, like Rafa Nadal or Djokovic, now his winning percentage is much closer to 50-50 in the coin flip. Uh, okay, so how does this relate to the world of acting investing? When we're playing sports, whether it's one-on-one -on -one game like tennis or baseball where it's one-on-one -on -one when you're against the pitcher, that's a very different game than you and I play when we're trying to outperform the market. Because think of it this way. If Warren Buffett or some active manager was competing against me, they would win all the time. But they're not competing against me. They're competing against, you know, Buffett is competing against, think about it, as the Peter Lynch's of the world, the great hedge fund managers, etc. They do today institutions 90% of all trading. Uh, so every time when Merrill Lynch is trading against Goldman Sachs, nine times out of ten, you know, they've got another institution on the other side of the trade. It's very hard to know who will win, and they're setting prices. So you have to think about investing as much more of a game where you're competing against, number one, the very best players in the world, not just the average person. So that gets to Babe Ruth, you know, not just facing average pitchers, but only the Walter Johnsons, but it's even worse because he's facing the Walter Johnsons who have Sandy Koufax's curveball, Hoyt Wilhelm's knuckleball, etc. So the collective skill sets of all of those great pitchers. That's the problem, and that's why the vast majority of active managers fail with great persistence. It's a totally different game. When it comes to planning for retirement, what you have now versus what you actually need are two entirely different things. How do you get from point A to point B? Do you have a plan to achieve your retirement goals? Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sign up for your free financial assessment. There are so many things to think about. Income, risk, asset allocation, inflation, taxes, social security, healthcare, Medicare, long-term care. The list goes on and on. You need to talk to a professional. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. You know, in your book, uh, The Incredibly Shrinking Alpha, um, you talked about, you know, the markets back after World War 
too, where, you know, direct stock ownership, a lot of it was held by individuals and very small um, by um, the institutions. And now that is flip flop today. And there was also a good analogy there, like Ted Williams batting 400 or Wilt Chamberlain, um, you know, getting 100 points and 30 rebounds. But if you take a look today, you know, the, the, the best player in the NBA is getting, what, 15, 16, half of that. And the, the analogy kind of ran is that, all right, well, back then, was Wilt all that? If Wilt played today with the, 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 the players today, would he be as dominant as he was? Because now there's better training, there's better diets, there's a lot more money involved, and the players are getting better, the coaches are getting better. So the competition is that much more vast today. And th- that's kind of true with the markets, because I think before, as you might have said, is that maybe portfolio managers back then had a liberal arts degree. Now, today, they have PhDs in finance, and, and there was no such thing back then. So the, the, the competition has raised so much as well. Uh, exactly. The competition is dramatically higher. Everybody who runs money today, or the vast majority, they're all PhDs in finance. They're aware, of, certainly, of all the academic research that I've published in my books, which makes it much harder to outperform because the average investor you're competing against is a lot more skilled, as you said. You know, 60, 70 years ago, 90% of the money was run by individuals trading their own stocks, and today it's 90% of the money uh, is run by institutions in terms of the trading. So the competition has gotten much more difficult, uh, and that's why you don't see 400 hitters anymore. The competition has gotten much, much better in baseball as well. So, With that information, then what do we do as investors, right? Because we're looking to try to get a higher expected rate of return. And so when, when people hear this information, they might have a different idea of what they should do versus using that information to their advantage and putting the probability in their hands versus Wall Street's. Yeah, the problem is that nobody likes to... Uh, you know, be average. And Wall Street, unfortunately, has totally misled the public into, into thinking that indexing or passive investing in a broader sense uh, is going to get you average returns. That's a complete lie that Wall Street needs you to believe. And the reason it's a lie is very simple, is that indexing does not get you average returns. It gets you market returns in the asset classes you're choosing, whether it's small caps or emerging markets or value stocks. And by definition, because indexers have lower costs, they must earn higher returns than the average investor because, by definition, all stocks have to be owned by somebody. And that means if one group outperforms before expenses because they're overweighting, say, Netflix, which has had a great return, then somebody else must, by definition, have under-owned Netflix. And collectively, they you know wash out. out. But net adding the two, they're going to underperform both of them on when you add their returns together, the indexer, because the indexer has lower costs. It's simple math. Anyone who doubts that, there's a wonderful little short paper by William Sharp called The Arithmetic of Active Management. So simply by accepting market returns in the asset classes that you want to invest, you are virtually guaranteed 
to outperform the vast majority of active investors. The only reason I say virtually guaranteed is that you have to have the discipline to stay the course. So the last point I'll make is this. If you want to outperform, as my books explain, then you have to own certain types of stocks that have generated historically greater returns, mostly because they are riskier investments, and riskier investments should have higher returns. And in our portfolios, we do that. We tilt our portfolios, owning more small and value stocks than the market does as a whole. And that's the best way to generate above-average returns because you're taking above-average risk. Right. And so I could have a – because I think when people hear indexing or passive, um, they might say, all right, well, I'll buy some index funds, and they'll buy, let's say, the S&P 500. And so, all right, well, I have my portfolio, and then you have the Larry portfolio. You are going to significantly outperform me because now you're using the sophistication that you've learned throughout your career of how markets work, of saying, well, there's somebody fishing, the, the, the pricing is fair. But knowing that information, then you can overweight or underweight certain asset classes and still buy those asset classes at a very low cost. But it's the construction of the portfolio that really means everything, not necessarily timing markets or picking the, the exact right stock. Yeah, the only thing I would say is I would add the word you have an expectation that if you own small and value stocks, you're going to outperform. In my book, uh, Your Complete Guide to Factor-Based Investing, uh, I, we, we show uh, tables showing the odds of outperformance for every one of the factors we recommend investors consider. And no matter how long the horizon is, there is still some chance that that factor will underperform. And that includes uh, the factor known as market beta, which is the market outperforming riskless treasury bills. So at one-year horizons, the market outperforms roughly two-thirds of the time. Uh, as you extend that out, that number increases. But even at 20 years, there's roughly a 5% chance that the market will underperform riskless treasury bills. So roughly once every 20 or 25 five-year, 20-year uh, periods, you're going to underperform, and you have to accept that risk. Small and value is the same thing. We w just went through uh, a 10-year period where value slightly underperformed by roughly 1% a year for 10 years. Uh, so it ha can happen. That's the nature of risk. If it was a guarantee, value and small would outperform, then everybody would adjust prices, would get pushed higher, and the, the premium would go away. That's a risk, and that's actually the biggest risk to most investors, because when they go through those long periods of underperformance, they don't understand that that's a random outcome, could have happened, they panic and sell, because most investors we found, and I'm sure you found this with working with your clients, investors without the knowledge that we have of the history of returns, they think three years is a long time, five years is an eternity, uh, and therefore they panic and sell after such short periods when you and I know that 10 years when it comes to investing is literally noise. You need even 20 years and longer to make good decisions. 
That's Larry Swedro, folks. Awesome stuff, my friend. It's been too long. Hey, where can people read your stuff? Uh, on ETF.com is where I, I write every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Well, you're, Monday, Wednesday, Friday? Would you sleep? <laughs> that's, that's why he wants to retire someday. <laughs> Nobody knows what's ahead for investors, but Larry Swedro's book, Playing the Winner's Game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, offers bedrock investing principles that can help you profit in today's shaky markets. Right now, it's available for free to Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Just click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get yours. Learn how to think like Warren Buffett and build a well-designed portfolio based on solid evidence and your highest interests. Playing the Winner's Game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett by Larry Swedro with a forward by Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get your free copy. Got the Kiplinger tax letter here. Did you read this? I did see it, yes. What'd you think? Kind of went through a couple of things that we've been discussing over the past couple of weeks with Trump's uh, proposals. Well, it did. It was a pretty good summary of it. And, and I guess if you hadn't been paying attention, Trump... Um, announced his tax plan. Actually, I guess maybe you would call it a tax outline because it was one page with a few bullets on it. But what was on the page was uh, the intention to grow the economy, create millions of jobs, and simplify our tax code. And the Kiplinger tax letter here, Alan, details are sparse. They're very sparse. In his one-page outline. Uh, let me highlight a couple of those details. Um, uh, the individual tax brackets, which there's seven brackets, starting at 10% going to 39.6, would change to three brackets, 10%, 25%, and 35%. The standard deduction would be doubled, but then there'd be no uh, exemptions for yourself or your children. And then certain uh, itemized deductions would be retained, like home mortgage interest and charity, but the other ones may go away. Alternative minimum tax would be repealed. The estate tax would be repealed. The 3.8% Obamacare Medicare surtax would be repealed. Affordable Care Act. Yes, to, yeah, to be exact. But a lot of people know it as Obamacare, so I just say that. But what does Kiplinger say? They say uh, this is a starting point for negotiation uh, and... Uh, they also say that um, it's <laughs> several things in it are probably not going to pass. Right. So that's in a, that's a summary of what it says. Yeah, he goes, the rhinos for home mortgage interest and charitable giving are safe, uh, but that's about it. Every deduction facing the acts uh, has backers in the private sector and on Capitol Hill. Um, so there's already a ton of backlash across party lines from congressional lawmakers from New York to California and other high-tax states uh, against Trump's idea to drop the popular deduction of state, local, and property taxes uh, for a deduction. Right. And Al and I were doing the numbers uh, recently. And so for high-income earners, if you're in the 39.6% tax rate, well, given the proposal, your tax rate will go to 35%. So that sounds really good. That sounds like you're improving. Yeah, you're you're improving. But guess what? You can't write off the state of California. If you're in a 39.6 tax rate on the federal side, you're at about 10, 12%, right, on the right. state of California. Yes. And that is equal. 
equivalent to what it's, about five percent tax? Yeah, it's it's about if you're in the highest bracket, thirteen point three. Let's just say that that tax write-off from the federal from the current federal tax is equivalent rate of just over thirty-four percent. So your tax rate will actually in California be going up, whereas other people in other states their tax rate will be going down because they live in states that where there's a lower tax, or like Nevada, Texas, Washington State, Florida, they don't have any tax, so it doesn't really. Uh, you think there's going to be mass ex- exodus out of <laughs> to Nevada, Washington? <laughs> okay, well, no, but, but we get this question quite a bit. It's like, all right, now, um, you know, the the state tax here in California is way too high. I'm going to move to Nevada, right? And how about if I have deferred comp? Because there's some things that will you like a pension plan or four hundred one k plan. You move to Nevada, you actually move to Nevada, right. right? So you get a driver's license, voter's registration. You have a primary residence. Everything is Nevada. You don't have a house in California. You're living in Nevada now. You're not paying state tax in Nevada. Right. But you have a 401k plan. You take distributions, still state tax free in Nevada, even though you accumulated those dollars in California. Right. That is right. And then like a pension plan. But what what are some things that will, will follow you? Yeah, the franchise tax board will follow. <laughs> they'll try to follow you, and and if you do, if you actually do legitimately move to Nevada, there are certain things in California that are still going to be taxed in California, even though you're a full-time Nevada resident. For example, if you, I'll just go over the obvious and easy ones, uh, is if you own real estate, a rental property in California, well, it's still taxable to you in Nevada. There's no state tax in Nevada, but it's it's located in California, so you got to pay California tax on that. So you have to pay California state tax on the income that I receive from that rental? From that rental, correct. Now, when it comes to employment, interestingly enough, about 10, 15 years ago, the states got together because every state had their own interpretation. It It was so confusing. But what they've all, they're in pretty much alignment now, which is money that you take out of qualified retirement accounts are taxed in the state of residence. So you put a whole bunch of money into a 401k in California, you move to Nevada, you pull the money out of the 401k or IRA, it's uh, it's Nevada income, it's not California income. That's on qualified retirement plans. Non-qualified payments, like a non-qualified deferred comp, some companies have executive plans where they can defer some of their compensation, and then when they retire, they get it paid out over five years or 10 years or something like that. That would likely be still considered California income because it was actual compensation. It was deferred compensation. Same thing with stock options. If you exercise stock options as a Nevada resident, well, that was actually earned as a California employee, so it should still be California. Now, interestingly enough, I will tell you this from experience, not all companies do it correct on their W-2, and the IRS really has no way to know this, and so a lot of uh, accountants just, whatever it says on the W-2 is what the, like if it says Nevada, right, Nevada state uh, Nevada taxable. Right. Then a lot of accounts just follow that, but that is the rule. If it's if it's if it's non-qualified compensation. So that could be non-qualified stock options. Non-qualified stock options. It would be deferred compensation. It would be deferred bonuses. It would be you know you moved out of state and then they pay you your vacation pay. That's still California because you earned all that. That's compensation from your service in California, where it gets a little bit hazy, to be honest, is maybe you moved to Nevada in the last year of your business, or last year of your career, you work in Nevada. So now when you exercise the stock option, 
is it California? Is it Nevada? It's it gets a little trickier at that point. But you're still employed. The it doesn't really matter where the company is headquartered at, as that, long right. as it's, where your residence it's, is. It's where your residence is. Yeah, correct. you know, I got. It, well, know. It's, it's actually it's, it's where you're working. It's, right, it's, right, right. Where it is. So yeah. I got a buddy. You know, he's starting a, a small business. He's selling um, tactical gear. Tactical. Oh yeah. You need a harness. You need to carry a body out of a ditch. He's got he's got a that's, harness for you. That's that's your guy. Huh? Oh yeah, I got him. Okay. Yeah, he's um he's a buddy of mine from high school. Did you get a catalog? Oh yeah, I got catalogs of harnesses and tactical gear, whatever, whatever you need. So I went to high school with him. Okay, all right. And so he ran into some firm in Los Angeles uh, that he was um, they were going to make his harnesses i don't know whatever so he's like yeah do you think i can you know uh, stay with you for a little bit and i said yeah no problem i got a hostel at my house right <laughs> you, do, you got several bedrooms oh jeez that's the worst mistake i had my, my so that was january okay still there really still there still there wow i didn't know oh yeah so yeah. i get home from uh, the office a couple nights ago and there's like all these, you know, army like rangers tactic. They're all tacked out, <laughs> and there's dogs, and there's tactical gear for dogs. Oh, I'm wow. like, is is this World War? What what the hell's going on here? We're preparing for the we are preparing war. for war. So um, wow. But anyway, so I guess I digress. He's like, well, how about if I, you know, have like my LLC in Florida. Right. I said, okay, sounds good. Uh, please do. Yes. Right? And, he, and he's like, well, no, I just set up the LLC, but I still live here. I was like, no, doesn't that doesn't work. work. Right. I said, please move to Florida. Yes. <laughs> Save You're, yourself you some taxes a, and get the hell out of my would, house. You would be a, right. You'd be a Florida LLC doing business in California, still taxed in California. Yeah, it doesn't matter where your your little LLC is created. That's, that's accurate. A lot of people think that's they get they can escape state taxes. No, it's where you actually do the business. It's been three decades since the last major tax reform, but as you just heard, this could be about to change in a major way. That said, the president and the Republican Party are still divided on a number of key policy questions. Visit the White Paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to download the White Paper Tax Reform, Trump versus House GOP, for a deeper look into the proposals. How might income tax, estate tax, and business tax change? Are your tax strategies at risk? Download the Tax Reform White Paper to find out more. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Hey, Al, our crack research team was on the ball. Yeah, they're just they, a little late. Just a little late. Just a smidge. <laughs> but we're, we're close. We're close. Yeah, National Financial Literacy Month was actually April, but we're close. Yeah. What's it, June? Yeah, almost. <laughs> almost there. <laughs> but we have a very special guest. I'm honored to have him on. Uh, Jack Kozakowski. He's the president and CEO of Junior Achievement. We have a um, Susan Brandeis, who's our director of financial planning, is a huge, huge supporter of uh, Junior Achievement. And Jack, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Hey, so what are some of the things that you're doing? We have this, um, like a financial camp here in San Diego, uh, which is phenomenal, that kind of helps kids understand money and things like that. Tell us a little bit about, for our parents and grandparents that are listening, what lessons should we be teaching our children when it comes to money? 
Well, it's a great question. It's one we get often, um, you know, tied in with that. People are always asking, you know, when do you start talking to kids about money? And uh, through all of our research and, and experience, we think the earlier you start, the better. Uh, you know, just to give you an example, uh, as part of uh, Financial Literacy Month, we conducted a uh, survey along with the Jackson Charitable Foundation of kids ages 7 through 10. And uh, what was unique about it, we did this uh, with their, their parents as well. And uh, what we saw out of that is that even at that really young age, uh, kids had an awareness about money, but it was really kind of limited to just a few topics, uh, saving money, uh, counting money, those kinds of things. But there was clearly a desire on their part to learn more. But, um, you know, the first teacher of kids in this is typically parents. And we're seeing what parents think that they should be doing that they're, they're really not doing as good a job as they could be. Yeah, and it seems that the schools really don't teach much about finance and dollars and cents as well. And you, you guys go actually go into schools, right? Yes. Uh, junior Achievement, and just give uh, your listeners a little background for those not familiar, uh, we're a global organization. Here in the United States, we reach uh, over 4.8 million students every year in kindergarten through 12th grade. And we focus on financial literacy, workforce readiness, and entrepreneurship education, all three of which are kind of inextricably linked. Uh, and the majority of our programs take place actually right in the schools. But what makes us unique is we don't rely solely on the professional educator to deliver the information. We bring uh, nearly a quarter of a million uh, business and community volunteers into the schools, uh, you know, from the quote-unquote real world that share personal examples. And we find that that mentorship adds a great deal to their understanding and their interest uh, in money. So here's what I'd like to know. Based on experience, I think when, and I've been CPA, I've been in finance my entire career, I remember distinctively one time my kids, my oldest son was probably 13 or 14, my younger son a couple years younger, and I, I really wanted to teach him a bunch of financial concepts, and we sat down, and the kids looked, I think because I was their dad, the kids looked at me, and they just started laughing, and they were laughing so hard they were crying, and it, it, didn't, uh, it didn't go very well. Well, you're a funny guy, Al. Uh, yeah, because I'm, an, interest. I'm an accountant. <laughs> but how, how should, I guess, here's my question. How should parents uh, talk to their kids, and, and what should they talk to them about? Well, uh, first off, Al, don't feel bad. Uh, our research shows that uh, 41% of the kids feel negative emotions or fear, confusion, or boredom. I haven't heard laughter, but uh, those three items, when adults have these conversations. Yeah, that meant And it's primarily because... Everything we deal with kids needs to be age-appropriate. Um, and so those of us that have been out of school for a while tend to focus on, on uh, the more complex topics. And so if I could just share with you and with your listeners five simple items uh, that when it comes to managing money that, that parents need to get across to kids and that you can do it in different ways at different ages. And the first one is one probably people don't think about much, but we have to teach our kids how to make money. You know, if, if you don't have a job or a career or able to move through careers where you make money, you don't have to worry about managing it because you don't make any. So, you know, that's the number one thing. We've got to make sure we get kids ready for the world of work. Uh, number two is, uh, you know, conveying to kids that you can't spend more money than you earn 
And, of course, the CPA, you know, that gets into budgeting, very basic uh, kind of information. So uh, can't spend more than you earn. Uh, number three is that you should save a little bit out of everything that you make, uh, either for a rainy day or, on a more positive note, saving for that new bicycle or your first automobile or for college. Uh, number four, we'd like to have parents talk to their kids about credit. Because, you know, since 2008, credit has really gotten a bad name as a terrible thing. And, you know, what we try to convey to kids is that credit is just a tool, you know. And if you take a hammer, for example, and you use it appropriately, it's a great tool. You, you hit yourself on the thumb, not so much. So you have to understand it, know how to use it appropriately. And number five gets into a little bit more complex topic, but talking to the kids about insurance and, and managing risk. And so, you know, what I've seen, and I've been doing this over 40 years, is that we as adults tend to want to talk to kids about mutual funds and stocks and these items that the majority of the adult population doesn't understand, uh, and we lose them. So stick to the basics. Well, that's, uh, that's good advice. Now that they're in their mid-20s, I'll try again. But still, if you look at the statistics, Jack, I mean, most... Um, adults fail miserably at financial literacy. Uh, absolutely, and and that's the problem. I kind of refer to this issue as the new birds and the bees talk. You know, parents who, and in our surveys, overwhelmingly say that where should kids learn about money? At home, from mom and dad. But the problem is nobody ever taught mom and dad. They're doing a woeful job of managing their own money, so that when it comes to talking to the kids, they just don't feel adequately prepared. And that's kind of why we, we see these mentors that we put into the schools, people that are, you know, trained and professional in having these conversations as a way to get at these very important discussions. Hey, where can our listeners get some resources uh, in regards to the work that you're doing there at Junior Achievement? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, love to have them go to our website. And uh, it's a real simple one. It's ja.org. And we even have a parents section uh, on the website that will introduce them to activities and uh, games that they can do with the children that, with their children that are, are sort of age appropriate. Uh, and, and that's a great tool. And, and I would say for parents who have uh, younger children, you know, in that 7 to 10 age group, uh, one of our partners, uh, Jackson Charitable Foundation, uh, on their site, and that's jacksoncharitable.org, has a program called Cha-Ching, very appropriate, Cha-Ching Money Smart Kids. And it's a series of cartoons that the parents could watch right along with their kids, and it would introduce topics that they could then, in a very natural way, uh, have a conversation with their children. Hey, we'll put all of that information there on our show notes. So um, if you missed any of that, driving in the car or whatever, you can always go to our website at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get that information. Jack, appreciate your time. I want to thank you for coming on. Get social with Your Money, Your Wealth and Pure Financial Advisors. Follow us on Twitter at YMYW Show. To connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Google+, just search for Pure Financial Advisors. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture in handy bullet point format. This week, 10 retirement planning moves to make in your 20s. Usually, Joe, we're talking about uh, retirement planning and some tax planning strategies for retirees. I wanted to kind of go the other direction today. And that's difficult, Joe. You get your first job and you're barely getting by and you're trying to pay off your student loans and 
buy a car and maybe even in your late 20s save for a home? How do you save for retirement at the same time? It's it's a lot. It's in, it's a lot. But, yeah, the last thing on your mind in your 20s is retirement. However, it I mean, is, we're, what bar am I going to uh, go to? Of course. So I'm going to give you an alternative to that kind of thinking because oh. it's good for your future. Okay. And Thank so you. here's some things you ought to think about. And I'm not saying in your 20s you need to save 20% of your income. I mean, maybe you start saving $50 a paycheck or $25 a paycheck. You just get started, right? That's that's kind of the probably the main point. But here's the 10 ideas. Number one is to save automatically. Like if your employer has a 401k, get enrolled in that, have it come directly out of your paycheck. Uh, we find that uh, when people are thinking that they'll save with what's ever left over from their income minus expenses at month end, there's nothing ever left over. So if you have it taken right out of your paycheck, then it's automatic. You don't think about it, out of sight, out of mind. And there you go. You started your savings program, even though it may be small. You'll be able to live off of the net income after you save. Right. Yeah, Without you'll figure, you'll figure you out a figure way. It out. You'll figure out a way. The second one is, if possible, find a job with retirement benefits. And, and I think for a lot of people in their 20s, they, they don't really understand that some employers have great retirement benefits like 401k plans. Others don't have any kind of benefit. Now, 401k plan is a plan where you can take some of your salary, you can actually defer it, put it into a retirement savings account, so you don't get taxed on it. And then generally, not always, but generally, your employer matches at least the first few dollars that you put in. You put in $50, your employer matches $50. So every time you put in $50, $100 is going into your account. It's a really, really good deal. And I think a lot of a lot of kids in their 20s don't really understand how that works and why it's so important to participate in your 401k if your company has one. And of course, if you have two same same jobs and one as the 401k, you take the one with the 401k, although that's not realistic. Really, you want to take the job that's going to propel your career. But given the choice, <laughs> I'm just going off this list. That's the top of Alan's list. <laughs> well, do they have a good 401k plan? That's that's the first question. Yeah, they're paying me 30 grand. It's great. Well, the other one, I turned on 150 grand. They didn't have a 401k. Good for you, son. Yeah, you good job. The, made the right choice. Uh, this is U.S. News and World Report. Uh, number three is don't pass up the 401k match. We already talked about that. Uh, four is open up an IRA if you don't have a, um, a or even 401k, if you do, or even if you do, or better yet, number five is contribute to a Roth IRA, right? So an IRA or Roth IRA, you can put up to five thousand five hundred dollars of your salary directly into an account. Realize that a regular IRA, you get a tax deduction; a Roth IRA, you don't. So on the surface, you might think, well, maybe a regular IRA is a better way to go because I get a tax deduction. Well, if you're young and in a low tax bracket and you're not going to save that much in taxes anyway, a Roth is going to be a lot better because all of the money in the Roth will grow tax-free. In other words, when you withdraw the money from the Roth at retirement, you never pay a dime of tax. And a regular IRA is completely different. You get a tax deduction now, but it grows to a higher balance. Every dollar that you pull out is fully taxed at your ordinary income tax rate. I have such a different belief in this because I've been doing this a couple of days. And it, the human behavior is a lot stronger than arithmetic. And so I get emails from this guy, Bob. Yeah. I don't know if he watches our TV show or if he listens to the podcast. And he's he always needs a little nudge. 
he's like, all right, Joe, right? You know, hey, I'm turning 50. My company just got a Roth 401k. I'm in a fairly high tax bracket. You know, I've saved a ton of money um, already pre-tax. What do you think? Should I go Roth? In my opinion, it's like, all right, well, you've already saved a lot of money into your overall 401k. You're 50. He makes a ton. And it's like, all right, well, he's in the 33% tax bracket. And I told him, I said, you know what? If, if you were talking to Big Al, if you were talking to most advisors, they would probably say 33% tax bracket is pretty good. Right? So that's a good deduction. Take that. My thought is, you know what? Go Roth. Because you're not going to remember in 20, 30 years that you missed that deduction. Right, because you because you adjusted your spending to cover you adjusted that. your spending accordingly yeah. to say you know what I'm going to put my eighteen thousand or twenty four thousand dollars after tax yeah my income is a little bit higher but now I got the twenty four thousand growing one hundred percent tax free for the next twenty years and twenty years from now I'm not going to remember the tax deduction I'm not going to be like damn it I should have taken that deduction. I should have taken that tax deduction <laughs> I should have saved that five thousand dollars in tax twenty years ago when now I have a half a million dollars all mine tax free I go in the future you're going to be so happy that you did it because because you're not going to remember the tax deduction. Right. And then or you go the other way. Now you got a half a million or a million bucks sitting in a 401k plan. Guess what? Are you like are you happy? Yeah, you're happy you got a million bucks, but you're going to be upset because it's all 100% ordinary income tax and you're not going to remember how good that felt 20 years ago to save a couple of bucks in taxes. <laughs> so here we've got at odds we have kind of financial arithmetic versus behavioral finance, yes. I think is what we're saying. And so the accountant in me will say exactly that. Don't do the Roth because you're in a high tax bracket, and if you're going to be in a lower tax bracket in retirement, that wouldn't make any sense. And what you're saying is, I think you're saying, I'll paraphrase, is that could be not a bad idea if you can save on the taxes, but most people we know from experience don't save. They'd spend that savings, and if you're going to spend it, which is what most people do, you're probably better off just going Roth. So I, I think I can follow that logic and even agree with it. Right. And what Al said is, all right, so let's say I saved $5,000 in tax by putting it in the pre-tax account. Well, that $5,000 that I saved in tax, well, I take that five grand and I put that into an investment account and let that thing grow. Right. But what do we do? We've... we've we, we right. You pay your taxes. You save into your four hundred one k plan, and you spend everything else. That's that's the norm, right? I mean, that's not true for everybody. True. So if you're a saver, then follow my advice. If you're like ninety percent of the people that we meet, uh, or ninety percent of everyday people, you're probably likely to spend that saving. So maybe the Roth might be better. But I will say, when- I, know, I would like to pull our audience here, and for those of you I know where you're at, who you are, you got a couple million bucks in your retirement accounts, and let's say now that you're 60. If you could go back in time, do you still want that tax deduction that you took on that $18,000 that you saved each year? Or now, when you look at that, would you be happier if you didn't take the deduction? What do you think most people are going to say? Well, they, they would... They're just like, like, no, said, Joe, I loved that deduction. You, you, they they for, forgot about forgot it. it. That's the, yeah. the next year. So you should write a book. That would be a contrarian to the industry. I, that's yeah. me. That. <laughs> Number six, I know you love this one, uh, is consider the Myra. Oh, God. That's so stupid. Why is that not a good idea? Myra. That's, that's, it's, just, that's a, it's a poor man's Roth that's invested in T-bills. Yes. Well, you can't say poor man, Al, because it was geared for lower income people. <laughs> All right. Well, but a Roth can be done by anybody. Right. Yes. Yeah. That, so anyone could do a Roth IRA and have a diversified portfolio that might grow a little bit more than, you know, what the... the 
10-year treasury yeah. still what, I, I will two, say, two, though, yeah. going back to our 20-year-olds, uh, Roth IRAs are, are almost always going to be your best bet at that age. The tax deduction is very meaningless to you. It's, it's not going to mean a lot. Uh, and maybe 30, 40 years of tax-free growth, that's gigantic. Number seven is make sure you claim the saver's credit. You know about the saver's credit? Yes, I do. Yeah. I we talked about that for about 30 seconds on this show about a year ago. And I think you get like, I don't know, what is it, 500 bucks? Yeah, you get between 10 and 50% of the amount contributed up to $2,000. Oh, so 2000 Yeah, a couple thousand bucks. Oh, and so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's when you are putting money into a retirement account. You got to have, a, what, less than $50,000 of income? Yeah, I'll tell you. Right. Yeah, stick oh, with me. Oh, wow. Sorry, so four, 401k, you put money into 401k, IRA. Uh, if you're single, you got to make less than gross income of less than 31000 31. And if you're married, it's 62000 exactly double. But the less that you make, the higher the credit. So, like, right now, if you're single, most most people in their 20s are single. Maybe not all. I don't know. But nowadays, uh, so we'll, we're talking about 20-year-olds. You're single. If your income is less than 18500 and you're still putting money into a retirement account, God, God bless, bless you. you, right? But you get a 50% credit of your deduction, right? So it's kind of like the government's giving you a match, in, in a sense. Now, if it's between 18500 and 20000 it's 20%. Credit if it's between twenty thousand and thirty one thousand, it's a ten percent credit. So, I mean, is that credit? Would that be a refund? Yeah. Yes. It's 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 it doesn't go into your into your retirement account. It's no, just, no. But let's say if I zeroed out my income, I didn't have any taxable income, and I got that two thousand dollar credit, let's say, or whatever it is. Oh, added, is, is it a would, is, would, is, is it, it a refundable? Yeah, refundable credit. credit. Uh, 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 mobile. I'm not, not sure. Well, I'll, I guess the, the, the point is that if you have kids that are making eighteen, twenty thousand bucks, um, you know, give them a couple thousand bucks to fund their r- retirement account, they get a tax credit, and if that's refundable then that's free money, yeah, potentially. I think, I think that's the best application, really, is is if a parent has the wherewithal to fund the child's uh, retirement account, they're going to get a tax deduction or tax credit to right. boot. Tax credits are always better than deductions, right? Because you get to deduct it against dollar for dollar against taxes instead of reduce your income. All right, roll over your savings when you leave jobs. So many people, they leave their job and they, they just take their retirement account. They pay taxes plus penalties. Shop around for low-cost investments. We just talked about that last segment. And build an emergency fund. That's very, very important. So your car breaks down, you got some kind of medical emergency, you got some problem, you'll be able to afford it. There you go. There's Al's list. So word from the wise man himself. It's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or you can send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or alan.clopine at purefinancial.com. All right. My deceased father's beneficiary for his traditional IRA was my parents' trust. Okay. Parents Trust is the beneficiary. The IRA account type is now an inherited deceased IRA. The account pays required minimum distributions based on the deceased spouse's life expectancy using the single life table. My mom receives the RMD and pays ordinary income tax on the distribution. She is also the primary beneficiary with me. Hold on. She is also the primary beneficiary with me as the contingent. 
So I assume when she passes, I will receive the RMD and pay taxes at my tax rate. Should I change the beneficiaries to my children to reduce the taxes paid on the RMD? Well, that was a mouthful. All right, so let me see if I can recap this. Dad died. Yes. And the beneficiary was the trust. Correct. Not the spouse, the trust. Correct. And the trust is the primary beneficiary. I mean, the spouse, uh, the spouse is the spouse primary beneficiary of the, of the trust. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. So the spouse, mom, is is taking required distributions and paying tax uh, at her rate, which that makes sense. Now, so, so I guess the beneficiary is, I suppose it's still the trust, I guess, right? So if uh, if son were to get it, then now you it, it would be required distributions, but through the trust. And, and we know, Joe, there's issues with having beneficiaries in a trust, particularly when it's non-spouse, when it's the next generation. This is a whole bag of... It's a lot. This would take two segments. <laughs> <sighs> so, see if you can summarize it. You're actually pretty good at summarizing this all this stuff. All right. I'm just going to listen and take notes. All right. A few different things. All right. So this is a lesson to learn. Do not make this mistake. Do not name your trust as the primary beneficiary of your IRA if you're married or unless you want to control the money from your spouse, but you probably don't want to do that, right? So, so in other words, the spouse is the primary beneficiary. Of your retirement accounts, yes. You, you could have the trust as the contingent, but there's all kinds of issues there. So because here's what can happen. All right, so let's just assume that they did it appropriately if if they took our advice. Some other people might say name the trust and I could fight that and I could tell you why it doesn't make sense. They could tell me why it does and so on. I'll tell you the pros and cons to each. So the con is just what's going on here because here's what could have happened. Let's say dad died, mom's still alive. Dad has an IRA. She is the beneficiary of that. What she could have done is said, all right, well, here, I could just roll that IRA into mine and take one distribution out of the overall account. Maybe she wasn't 70 and a half yet while he died. She could take it, roll it into her IRA. She would not have to take a required distribution until her age 70 and a half. So that could save some unnecessarily distributions from a retirement account so and be, get taxed on because it. Because it's in the trust, she cannot do Correct. That. She's the beneficiary of the trust. The trust now, right, is kind of the is the inherited owner of that account, sure. even though she's the beneficiary of the trust. Got it. So that she's got to take the required distribution. She cannot roll that now into hers because he named the trust as the beneficiary. So then if she, if, if she was the beneficiary, then she passes, right? Now son and inherits that account. So the, I'll answer the question. He wants to disclaim the overall distribution from the retirement account to his kids to say, hey, they're in a lower tax bracket than mine. Let's disclaim my inheritance of the retirement account to my children. Then they would take the required distribution, pay the tax at a lower rate. But I get, I'm guessing this is what this guy wants to do. He was like, all right, I'm going to disclaim it to my kids. They're going to pay the tax, but it's still my money. Yeah, I'm going to take it. It's still mine, right? right? Yeah. That's kind of where I'm feeling this yeah. is going. It could be. Right? They're could just be. trying to, well, I'm in a high tax rate. Mom, you're going to die soon, so let's just name the kids as the beneficiary. The kids won't know. I'll take the distributions. I'll do their taxes. I'll do their taxes. They won't yeah, know. They won't know a thing. They're minors. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, no, you don't want to. Well, yes, that would, if your kids are in a lower tax bracket than you, you can disclaim right the overall um, asset to the next generation however 
This is in a trust. Right. So now you're going to have to change the beneficiaries of the trust. In in some cases, depending on how that trust document was established, what type of trust is it in? Is it an irrevocable trust stating that now that you cannot change the beneficiaries because that's usually what happens in some cases at death right. because they want to protect the assets to go to their beneficiaries? So let's say I'm married, I'm 70 years old, my wife is 30. I'll get aggressive here, right? <laughs> <laughs> is that you? You had a few years. It's gonna happen, brother. <laughs> Thirty years from now, you're gonna have a ten year old at eighty. You got it. <laughs> and so it's like, all right. Well, my my wife might get remarried, but I this right. I want to make sure that my money doesn't go to her new husband, her new sugar daddy. Got it. I want to make sure that it goes, goes to, to my ten year old. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You trust him more. Yes. <laughs> Or goes to whoever. Right. So you're protecting your beneficiaries by naming it in the trust. But now, if that's an irrevocable trust, it can that you can't change the beneficiaries. So now that that distribution comes to you. Now let me think this through. If that's gonna now it depends on if it's a conduit, a conduit trust or a discretionary trust. I mean, this is it gets way too complicated. Is the point it, because it is. now it, does it have to stay in the trust? Are they going to get taxed on those RMDs at trust rates, or is it going to flow through to the taxpayers, right? 1040, and then they pay tax on their rates. But now if I'm trying to disclaim the required distribution to go to the next generation, oh my goodness. Yeah, no, this is uh, this would take a few segments to answer. And, and I think our, our general advice is for your IRAs and 401ks, the, the primary beneficiary would be your spouse if you're married, and the contingent beneficiary would be your kids named as as beneficiaries. Now, if you name your living trust, as some people do, there's issues there potentially. One is it has to qualify for a look-through trust and a bunch of other things. And right. if it doesn't qualify for that, then all those dollars have to come out within five years. Or it follows the RMD of the deceased. Yeah, and that's only if, it, if the trust qualifies to be extended. Now, now you've got a, a 60-year-old beneficiary and a 5-year-old. Well, the required distribution for both parties has to be based upon the 60-year-old, the oldest life. Now, I, I actually do have a separate IRA trust myself, Joe. Look at the big, big wallet. Oh, big I went to the big uh, John <laughs> Preston and got it done right. And that's actually, there's a lot, so that's different from the living trust. Right. So that's actually set up for that purpose. It, well, no, the trust document itself is is drafted differently to yes. hold an IRA asset. That's right. That's not right. necessarily, because if I, if, I, if I die with my house, all right, well, the, the kids don't have to take a required distribution. There's no tax penalties. Right. Step up in basis, they sell it, get rid of it. Right. And so the, the principal advantage is a couple things. One is I could control the amount of distributions. I couldn't change the required distribution, but I could control what's distributed to the kids if I had a, a son or daughter that, that was a spendthrift. Or more importantly, in my case, Joe, it's... Credit protection. Yeah, exactly. Because once it's in the IRA trust, if my sons get married and, and, and one of them gets divorced or they get sued, this is not their asset. They have control. They have control of the income. They actually can pull out principal if they want to. But as far as lawsuit, divorce, it's not its not part of their assets. The state, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, because the trust owns it, not necessarily the individual. So, so I, so I kind of like that, uh, but uh, just to put it in your living trust, this is, yeah, a whole lot of issues here. That's it for us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. You're just listening to Your Money, Your Wealth. 
So to recap today's show, Trump's new tax plan may make your state tax bite larger or smaller, depending on where you live. If you're a millennial, start saving automatically to get the retirement savings ball rolling. And RMDs from an inherited IRA with a living trust as the beneficiary is a very complicated thing. Talk to a professional. Special thanks to Jack Kozakowski from Junior Achievement for giving us money lessons to teach our kids. Many thanks as well to author Larry Swedro for explaining the lack of persistence in investing performance and how passive investing can get you market-like returns. Be sure to click on special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get a free copy of Larry Swedro's book, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, the show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.